reading is from the New Testament. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll pick up at verse 7. That's page 965 if you're using the Blue Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. In verse 4, 5, and 6, he talks about how God has shined in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ and that this is a treasure. That's the treasure. And then he confronts us with our mortality starting in verse 7, but what is our only hope in the face of our mortality? We who are jars of clay, in whom is this treasure? So he'll unpack that starting at verse 7. So begin with me at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that He who who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the knowledge, to the glory of God, and so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And now we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. That's page... 556. We're going to actually work our way through Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 14. Please keep your Bibles open there as we continue our series through Ecclesiastes from abated to abiding. I'm going to read all of chapter 6 now, then I'll read chapter 7, 1 through 14 in the middle of the sermon. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on man, on mankind. A man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods, good things, and he also has no burial... I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise over the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? 
Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What I've read to you from 2 Corinthians and from Ecclesiastes is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Great and mighty God, in your rich compassion, help us to become more appreciative for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And please, make clear what I may muddle, and make fresh and full where I may fumble. Through Christ Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are summer notes on the back of the worship guide there. There's some questions and so forth. I remember a woman years ago, this is not a preacher story, it's a real thing, okay? That's a joke. I remember a woman sat next to her, as a matter of fact. She years ago had lost her husband and she was coming towards the, the twilight time of her life, her final days, and I asked her how things were going. And after a few comments about dealing with the aftermath of her husband's death, she observed, you know, having things is not as important as it once seemed to be. And this is what Solomon is addressing, really, in chapters 6 and 7, where he shows that affluence, affluence is not necessarily an advantage, but whatever our condition, we are to have soberness, in a soused world. And so let's begin looking at chapter 6, 1 through 12. Affluence is not necessarily an advantage. And notice immediately Solomon comes back. Solomon comes back to the luring, lusty, lying promises that wealth and all that come with wealth, that wealth is the place where we will discover our own rich meaningfulness and value. It's a thought, Solomon says, verse 1, that lies heavy on mankind. And so notice that Solomon seems to be speaking from personal experience here, a little autobiographical, the man who even sires a hundred children. I mean, a guy with 700 wives and 300 concubines, he's got to have sired at least a hundred kids. Here is the man who has it all, verse 1 and 2. The one whose financial portfolio would have made every stockbroker salivate, whose fortune would excite Forbes magazine. But what has he found to be true? Enjoyment of all of that is a gift from God. And without the divinely given enjoyment, verse 2, all is vanity and a grievous evil. A man may very well have it all, but God, for good reasons, may keep him from enjoying it. It may be through bankruptcy. could be through another market collapse. It could be through war. It could be through fatal disease. It could be through brain trauma. I've seen that one before. Or whatever. And then what happens? Well, the man then moves off the face of the earth. 
He moves off the face of the earth unfulfilled. Verse 3, his soul is not satisfied with life's goods. He moves off the face of the earth unappreciated, unlamented. He also has no burial. In fact, Solomon goes on to say that a stillborn child in the end is far better off than this person because the stillborn child didn't have to fret and didn't have to fight and didn't have to fume over fortune. That's verses 5-6. through Affluence, my friends, is not necessarily an advantage. And then Solomon lays out the hard reality of verses 7-9. through Look at verse 7-9 through very quickly. Let me read those again. While the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Rich and poor, wise and foolish alike, all of them work to eat, to work, to eat, to work, to eat, to work, to eat, to work, to eat ad nauseum. And then on top of this, humans have this insatiable appetite. You heard it twice there in verse 7 and verse 9, this, this appetite of toil for, is for his mouth, and his appetite is unsatisfied. And then you get in verse 9, and the wandering of the appetite. On top of all of this work to eat, to work to eat, to work to eat, to work to eat, there's this insatiable appetite. One that can take over their lives and become the very driving force. To put it in language I used to hear in AA, no longer content with eating to live, they now live to eat. Did you hear the difference there? No longer eating to live, they now live to eat. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans chapter 16 and verse 18 and Philippians 3 verse 19. Their God is their belly. The belly, the place where our appetite feels like it comes from. Their God is their belly, this insatiable appetite that drives and shoves and moves all that going on in the midst of all that work to eat, to work to eat, to work to eat, to work to eat, to work to eat. <laughs> Truly vanity. This insatiable desire is likely the reason that the man who has it all in chapter 6 can't enjoy the affluence because he's constantly going to consume more, more, more. And so in the end, verse 10 and 11, in the end, Solomon reminds us that we are all very limited. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and, and that there, he is not able to dispute with one stronger he. The more the words, the more the vanity. And what is the advantage to man for who knows what is good in life? And then I tell you what, after the man dies, he can't do anything about what happens after him under the sun. We're all very severely limited. For all of our getting, all of our grabbing, all of our gulping, the future, he keeps coming back to this, the future is still out of our control. After death, verse 12, after death there is no certainty. There's no certainty that what we have gained and what we have given to our progeny will be used properly or beneficially. 
I mean, I, I just think about the building and all that was involved in building the building in 1988 and 89, and many of you, some of you were here during all that time, and yet your time, you know, we're all getting older, and the day is coming, we won't be here. We have no control over what happens after us. This is why when you drive through Canada and you drive through other countries or other parts even of America, you find church buildings where people's faith was really hammered out in the architecture, but they're no longer churches. Those church buildings now are, you know, antique stores or whatever. You have no control over the outcomes of the future. All that you've gotten and all that you've given to your progeny, there's no control over that. And so in the end, affluence... Affluence is not necessarily an advantage. That's chapter 6, 1-12. through 12. And then the preacher kind of peeks around the corner and looks in a different direction. And based on what he has just said, it brings him to see the sustaining, the sustaining value of soberness in a soused world. Do you know what soused is? Right, inebriated, drunk, slobbered, dripping, drunk, right? And that's our world. And if you don't know that, then wake up. It's like our whole society, and it's been this way forever, but our whole society is inebriated, staggering around, stumbling, running into things. That's our world. So it brings Solomon to see the sustaining value of soberness in a south world. Let me read chapter 7, 1-14 through 14, and just follow along. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, where were the former days, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Soberness in a south world. Now, what Solomon is not promoting here is gloominess. He's not promoting some stoic dullness, sourpussness. That's what we used to call it in Oklahoma. You're a sourpuss, right? He's not promoting that kind of thing. What he's doing instead is he is reminding us it is better to don sobriety 
in the face of the shortness of life. That's verses 1 through 4. Far better to don sobriety in the face of life. My friends, we just had that stated to us clearly in the call to worship where Moses, toward the end of his life, writes Psalm 90. And even Moses says in his prayer in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Teach us, all of us, to know that we're not immortals as we are. That all of us will come to the end of our days. That not one soul here is entitled to tomorrow. Teach us to number our days. Save us from the delusion of 21st century America and the West and so forth that we'll live forever and we can expand our life expectancy and all that wonderful but my friends, sometimes there's something worse than death. Sometimes life is a heck of a lot worse than death. Teach us to so number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's what Solomon is driving at here. It's what he's punching at. Now, there are actual modern-day students of death and dying, and that form of study is called thanatology. Thanatos, death, logos, study. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross kind of began that whole deal back in the 1970s. And these thanatologists usually administer experiments when they're doing classes where they ask their constituents this question. If you knew that you only had six weeks to live, what would you do differently? If you knew you had only six weeks to live, what would you do differently? And they get some surprising answers. Right? I mean, it's, it's a good question. Actually, it's an Ecclesiastes-shaped question. Now, your answer needs to take in what we read back in chapter 3, that there's a season for this and for that and for this and for that, and all the routines that God has put into life should not necessarily throw those routines away. But it's a good time, it's a good question to reflect on. It's what Ecclesiastes is wanting us to do. There was a man named Richard John Newhouse. He was a Lutheran minister for many, many years, a single man. He was a Lutheran minister, and then in the 1980s, he became a Roman Catholic priest. But while he was still a Lutheran minister, he had his first bout with a life-threatening cancer. It was a cancer that came back later and finally took his life in the middle of the 2000s. I love reading Richard John Newhouse. And he's reflecting on that first bout he had with this life and death struggle with cancer back in the late 70s. And the book is called, As I, Day Lie, As I Lie, let's try that again, As I Lay Dying, that's it. As I Lay Dying, it's a great little book. And he makes this brilliant observation, quote, life is taken seriously when life is held to account our lives and the lives of others. The worst thing, is not the sorrow or the loss or the heartbreak. The worst thing is not the sorrow or the loss or the heartbreak. It is to be encountered by death and not to be changed by the encounter. The worst thing is not the sorrow and loss. It's to actually be encountered by death and not be changed by that encounter. And Solomon is doing just that. He is bringing us to encounter death because he intends for his son, Rehoboam, who he's writing this for, to be changed by that encounter. And he's intending us to be changed by that encounter. My friends, we will all come to the end of our days. I know you get tired of hearing this, but it's what Solomon's saying. 
We will all come to the end of our days. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in some of the articles I referred to you, uh, uh, referred to you the other day. We'll all come to the end of our days, some of us sooner or later. Some by bombs and guns, some by debilitating disease. We will all come to the end of our days. It'll all end. And so we need to recognize that. We live in a world that denies that. I'm sorry, but that's where we live. I had a ruling elder in a PCA church long, long ago, as one of my ruling elders, who was so afraid of death and so in denial of death, he was... You know, he was in his 70s. He wouldn't go to anyone's funeral. Anyone in his family, any of his friends. He just could not face death. He just wanted to live in this Disney world illusion. We're all going to be there. And so in the insightful words of a rock group named Switchfoot, a Christian, I think they're all Christians, in an insightful words, why would I wait till I die to come alive? I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for the afterlife. It's a great statement. Knowing that it's coming, why wait till after death to, to experience life? That's what we hope for in some sense, right? Why not live now in the face of knowing that death is coming? The idea is simple. Live well, die well. Live without regrets. Die without regrets. A while back, I was reading an English poet named Thomas Carlyle. I was getting into him. He died in 1881. It was said that he loved his wife dearly, and his wife loved him dearly. And the day came when she contracted cancer. This is in the 1800s. She contracted cancer, and she was bedridden. And during her illness, Thomas was busy busy writing his poetry, busy working, and he rarely stayed at her bedside. And after she died, they went to bury her, and it was a rainy day. Once the graveside service was completed, he went home and he sat next to her bed. And there he found, he found her diary and he began to read, quote, Yesterday Thomas spent an hour with me, and it was like heaven. I love him so. His heart hurt. And then on the next page, he read, I have listened all day to hear his steps in the hall, but now it is late, and I guess he won't come today. And so Thomas broke and threw the diary down, and he ran through the pouring rain to the graveside. And his friends found him face down in the mud and in the rain at the new grave, weeping and saying repeatedly, if only I'd known. Well, my friends, there are those, though, who will sit calm and laugh track and guffaw their way to the grave. That's verses 5 through 7, the fool, as he's put here. And Solomon wants us to avoid being swallowed up in that trap but also to cast off, in verses 8-10, through 10, to cast off that fatal disease diagnosed as if-only-itis. If-only-itis. And the particular strain of viral infection of if-only-itis has to do with how we always seem to look back to the golden era. Look at verses 8-10. through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. If only Idas. Times may be bad now, but dear friends, because of human sin, and we're Presbyterians, so let's just put the name on it, because of total depravity, times have always been bad. The good old days may not have had these sins, if you know what I mean, but they did have those sins. In fact, one of you, we were just at your house not too long ago, one of you was talking about going to the Civil Rights Museum in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and it, where you went through and you're looking at your ear that you were growing up and you remember how fun it was and how much you enjoyed it, but then you began to look at this in the Civil Rights Museum and realized, wow, it was not a good time. There were lots of people, lots of black folks who experienced evil firsthand. Our time, those golden ages may not have had these sins, but they had those sins. It's always been bad. It's never been a golden era. After Genesis 3, it ain't ever been a golden era. You know what I'm saying? Since the fall, there has never been a golden age. Instead, it's far, far better for us to endure, to endure the present to endure the present with patience rather than pride. Verse 8, far better for us to endure the present with patience than with pride. Part of our problem is that we're very, very proud people. C.S. Lewis talks about it when he calls it chronological snobbery. But he's not the only one. There's several historians that talk about our historical narcissism. We think our moment is the most important moment and that we're entitled to it being the most important moment and that it's got to be the best moment of all world history. Why? Because I'm alive now. That historical narcissism, that, that chronological snobbery, which then makes us impatient with the present because we're very, very proud. Those things should... Those sins shouldn't be happening in our day. Right? That's the language of pride. And so Solomon is telling us, or reminding us, to endure the present with patience rather than pride. It's far, far better. And so, get wisdom. He keeps saying that over and over again. Verse 4, verse 11, verse 12. Get wisdom. Don't get the sour face. Don't get the soused illusions, but instead the sober mind. There's something protective in having that wisdom, that sober-mindedness. There's actually an antidote there. An antidote from being caught off guard and surprised by our coming end or, or surprised by the evil and so forth. There's an antidote by having that sober mind. Therefore, in the face of our brevity, in the face of the banality, in the face of the brutality, it is better to become satisfied with God's providential care. Did you notice verse 13 and 14? Consider the work of God who can make straight what He has made crooked in the day of prosperity. Be joyful in the day of adversity. Consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That last verse, verse 14, 
reminds me of the Heidelberg Catechism. Two of my favorite questions. There's three of my favorite questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. Number one, which is we use all, all the time for our confession of faith. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You know the answer. Then there are two others. And it's number 27 and 28. And if you've been in the hospital or you've been sick, seriously sick, and I've come and visited you, you probably have heard them because I carry them around on a laminated card. Sometimes I have extras and give them to you. It's really powerful. It's all about the providence of God. So I'm going to read them to you, and I would like you to go look them up. You can find them online. If you've got a copy of the Heidelberg Catechism, it's 2728. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty, everywhere present power of God whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs, so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Well, that's wonderful, Mike. Why is that important? Glad you asked. Question 28. What does it profit us to know that God created and by His providence upholds all things? What does it profit us that we may be patient in adversity? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. Have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. That no creature shall separate us from His love since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. I love those two questions. My friends, this is the place a man, a woman, a girl, a boy, can grow in satisfaction, can grow in security, can grow with sanity in an insane world in the face of all the brevity, banality, and brutality. Brothers and sisters, young and old, grab soberness in a soused world. So where do we end up in all of this? Well, first off, Reminded again, prosperity, yes, prosperity is a gift of God, but so is the ability to even enjoy it. Therefore, it's the gift of God that means we are not entitled to it. As God Himself says in Deuteronomy 8, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and, my, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Secondly, in a, in a society that is, that is in a mad, soused, passionate love affair with the giddy and the gushy and the glitzy, and I can give you more G words, but that's good, right? In a, in a society that's in this mad, soused, passionate love affair with all of that, it's far better for us Far better for us to sober up and to see life for what it is, whether long or short, whether healthy or hampered. Life is the gift of God. And this should bring us then to the place 
where with the Heidelberg Catechism, we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. Thirdly, there is some wisdom to a cynical question that is asked by an indie rock band. I think those, these guys are all atheists. The group is called Modest Mouse. Don't ask me why. Why did we call the other, you know, why we call them the turtles and the birds in the 60s? I don't know. But the group's called Modest Mouse, and they have this, this line in one of their songs, Ocean Breathes Salty. You wasted life. Why wouldn't you waste the afterlife? What a good reflective question. You wasted life. Why wouldn't you waste the afterlife? Brothers and sisters, let it be said of us. She, he, neither feared to die, nor refused to live. He or she did not fear to die, and did not refuse to live. You may ask, how can that be? Well, we can start with taking Paul's words to heart that we read at the very beginning of the sermon from 2 Corinthians 7. When Paul talks about us having this treasure, the treasure of, of the glory of God that shines in the face of Christ that's in our hearts, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. There's our mortality. That's us as humans, our, this jars of clay. Having this treasure in jars of clay. Why do we have this treasure in jars of clay? To show the surpassing power that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And we, we always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, do so so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who have always been given over to death for Jesus' sake, or that's happening to us so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look at the things that are not seen instead of the things that are seen, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's how we can grow into being finally said of us. They didn't. He didn't, she didn't fear death. She, he didn't refuse to live. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we are so grateful for Solomon and for Ecclesiastes. And it draws us up short and confronts us with our limitedness and our mortality. And we need to hear it. It's almost like medicine in a sick, toxic world. A world sick and toxic with its message of unlimitedness. Lord, we pray that You would help us that we would get soberness in our soused world. We'd come to be thankful in... we come to be patient in our anxious times, in our afflictions. We would come to be thankful in our prosperity. But whatever our condition. For the future, we would always have good confidence in you, O our God and our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.